Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Sunil Pai. Dr. Pai is an internationally recognized expert in integrative medicine, author, researcher, health activist, influencer, and thought leader in the wellness industry. He is board certified in holistic integrative medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, medical and neuroacupuncture, homotoxicology, physiological regulating medicine, herbal medicine, plant-based nutrition, and medical yoga. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, an Inflammation Nation, the definitive guide to preventing, reversing, and treating all diseases through diet, lifestyle, and the use of natural anti-inflammatories. He has been featured in documentary films for his integrative medicine evidence-based approach and use of the natural and anti-inflammatory Bosmeric SR. Enhancing your epigenetics, which includes diet, lifestyle, environment, and belief system is provided at House of San Giovanni Integrative Medicine Health and Lifestyle Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Pai, but before I do, just a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. Hi, Dr. Pai. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really happy to have you and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I would love you to tell me a little bit about your story and how you got into integrative medicine. Sure. So great question, by the way, Uh, because in my book, an uh, inflammation nation. I go into the understanding of why I f- specialize in in inflammatory uh, conditions and inflammatory disorders, and why I wrote a book about inflammation many years ago. But uh, when I why I got into integrative medicine is completely different. Um, in fact, uh, when I was younger, my father as a retired uh, ear, nose, and throat physician. Uh, he practiced for fifty three years, and uh, he, he was really you know well renowned. Uh, in his field. But one thing that he would teach me and tell me all the time when I was a kid growing up is that when he would get ear infections when he was in India, I'm first generation here, uh, Indian American, that his his mom used to crush uh, fresh garlic, with uh, put it with coconut oil and put it in the inner ear when they had ear infections. And in, in, in India, we get something called, uh, it's kind of like what we call here a swimmer's ear or Hong Kong ear. It's like, you know, when it's really humid in humid areas, uh, we actually get fungal infections of the ear rather than bacterial infections. And so his, his mom used to put this in his ear as a child and 
it resolved his infection. So as I was getting older, he always this was always a common you know thing that your parents would say or my dad would say is like, hey, you should do a study about this kind of thing, you know, like you know how, how that works or you know. And I would hear it all the time as a child growing up, growing up, growing up. Finally, when I went to um, India, uh, you know, between um, high school and college, I had this little break. Okay, let me go explore my roots, kind of go back and visit where my grandparents because my grandparents lived with me for a long time. So I wanted to go back, visit them and, you know, take that trek of, of, you know, the, of India from north to south. And every time I'd go to a village or a city and I'd go visit the medical clinics, because that's what I do. I like to check out everything from the temples to the, you know, the, the medical medicine there as well. And I would see this aspect where the doctors, you know, conventional trained MD, ENTs, and also the Ayurvedic doctors, which are what would you consider the more, you know, traditional medicine doctors of India, uh, they would take the scar, like they'd crush it, put it in coconut oil, or heat it up and put it in the ear. And so I was surprised because you know something that I heard all my life and never saw anybody do. And then all of a sudden, you know, I saw it like in clinics, like in the, in the hospitals, like MD hospitals, and also in the kind of the traditional medicine clinics. And so, you know, as I was trekking, I kept on seeing this, like everywhere I'd go, I'm like, wow, there's something to this. So when I came back, I said, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do a study. I went to the university here, University of New Mexico, and I found this wonderful microbiologist in, in, in the Department of Microbiology. Uh, I, and I asked him if he could teach me how to do a study. Does, does garlic have any, any antifungal effects against automycosis, which is the fungal infection of the ear canal? And so uh, he's from England. I was, you know, I'm have an Indian background. There's no Indian food in New Mexico. This is the way back when. And so he's like, well, if you make me Indian food, I will then uh, help you teach you how to do this. So he was teaching me how to, you know, set up the, the microbiology plates and how to, you know, how to do things, you know, clinically in, in a study. And then I needed supplies. I needed funding because I like, hey, I, now I'm going to test it. Now I've got my training down, you know, the skill down. Uh, let me, let me uh, go out, go ask for some funding, like grants. I think I needed like $1,500 at the time, which at that time was also a lot of money from, you know, a student, right? So I, I sent a, a letter uh, explaining this study to um, all the, ph the pharmaceutical companies that give the um, eardrops and also to all the garlic companies, supplement companies. Now, the reason why I was doing the study and why it's important is because the, e the eardrops that we give as conventional medicine for antifungals is, although they're very effective, there's two issues with them. Number one, they're super expensive. At that time, and even now, it's about $100 for a tiny little eyedropper bottle. So it's you know, only like an ML or something like in these bottles. And so you know, most, most people in, a, you know, in another country like India at that time as well, it's too expensive, right? Like the average person is making it less than a couple of dollars a day. You're talking about, you know, $90 for a tiny little bottle. But more importantly is that when kids get ear infections, um, a lot of times they get perforation of the eardrum due to the infection. And if they put these drops in the ear, then actually when it gets into the inner ear, it causes actually inner ear damage and it causes them, ha them having um, hearing problems, which then leads to learning disabilities. Now, most of the time, doctors here in the United States, you know, the baby's crying, pediatrician, you know, it's hard to get the child to settle down. So they just prescribe. They don't actually look into the ear. It's very, you know, sometimes it's really hard because the child's are, you know, crying and the situation is. So they don't get an adequate view of it. And so they prescribe it. It will kill the ear infection. But there's a lot of children then who still end up having this autotoxicity where they actually end up having mild hearing loss. And that ends up having the child having, you know, developmental delays because they're not hearing. That means they're not learning, then they're not speaking. Right. And so there's like, there's like thousands of kids all around the all around the world that have this problem and no one's really paying attention to this. So the nice thing is about the garlic doesn't have this autotoxicity and is very inexpensive. So to my dismay though, both companies, the pharmaceuticals obviously said no, because they're like, they're, they don't want to have anything to do with the natural world. But I was really surprised that the natural world said, hey, 
There's no antifungal. This is for the garlic companies that are selling garlic extracts, you know, aged garlic and all these garlic, you know, liquids and tablets. They're like, no, there's no antifungal uh, effects of garlic. So sorry. And so I was really, I was really depressed, <laughs> really disappointed. And then so I went back to the the the, the professor and I said, hey, you know, everybody said no, and he's, and he's like, well, and he felt sorry for me because I spent all the summer just learning the technique and getting things down. So he said he would fund the, the project as as long as I'd make more Indian food for him. So it was a great deal. He got a lot of food, and I got you know all my supplies, and then we started the study. And what we ended up showing is that um, the concentrated garlic oil actually has not only antifungal effects, but has very large effects. Uh, against the uh, the fungus larger and better than the pharmaceutical drugs. And one thing to our surprise is that none of the garlic supplements had that antifungal activity because those are aged extracts. They're not fresh. Okay. And so anyways, we, I ended up publishing, you know, writing it up and I was all excited because, you know, this is science, you know, we showed that this actually has, you know, doing it the same thing, comparing it with the pharmaceutical drugs. And then to my dismay again, because you know I wrote you know and at first at that time again I was a little naive. Now I'm much more versed in this concept, but at that time I was like, well, let me write and submit this article to the New England Journal of Medicine, like the most prestigious conservative journal, because I was using science, right? So to me, I'm like, this is great because we're using the science that we're supposed to be using, and let me let me apply you know applied science, and this is the data. So I sub- I sent it, and then I got this scalding letter back from the, uh, the at that time the editor of New England General Medicine saying like this there's no place in this journal for use of alternative medicine or natural therapies and blah 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 and I was really crushed because I was like but this is medicine and I'm using science and and what year was this this was nineteen between about nineteen ninety five okay okay and so uh, I was shocked uh, and then we 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 submitted it to a, a very prestigious microbiology journal which is great it got published in the microbiology journal. And more importantly, it got picked up by the editorial review uh, at the Lancet and the British Medical Journal, which are two very prestigious journals in Europe, because they were looking at, wow, this data is really important because it's now can be used for the average person that lives in these other countries that can that give the validity of, hey, you, you know, if someone can't afford $90 or the risk of having infection or we didn't get to see in the ear, we can teach them how to do this technique. And it's, very, it's something that's, again, that goes back thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine. But now we've kind of proved it with Western science, right? Uh, so anyways, we published in that and it really got me thinking, like, hey, there's something to this natural therapy because my grandparents I grew up with, you know, doing a lot of Ayurvedic medicine in the home, which I didn't know at that time was Ayurvedic medicine. You know, yoga was practiced in the home. I didn't know that it was yoga. Meditation was used in the home. I didn't understand that it was meditation. I just thought at that time that that was things that elderly people did as they got older. You know, it was, it was a wonderful thing because, you know, that kind of got me understand like, hey, we need to have this understanding of that there, as long as we're using science, then, you know, it opens up the, the, the avenues of multiple options that should be available. But what really pushed me to go into integrative medicine even further, because a lot of times people were saying, well, hey, if you're into all these natural things now, why don't you become a naturopath? you know, or a chiropractor. But um, what I learned very quickly from submitting that article and getting rejected is that you, you have to sit at the same table in order to have a voice. And if you're sitting on the other side, they'll always say, well, you're a naturopath, you're a chiropractor, you're, you know, even you're a DO, uh, you know, and uh, no, they want you to be an MD. So it's like, no, I got to be an MD. I got to finish my residency. You know, I got to do my fellowship in integrative medicine. I was in the first class, you know, one of the first classes 22 years ago with Andrew Wow at the University of Arizona. So it was, you know, it was, it was, I feel very lucky now because everybody, the hot thing to be is, is integrative or functional and, you know, learning about all these natural things. When, and I have, you know, you can see my bio, I have lifelong learning of the last 20 years, but it's now taking that aspect of true understanding the foundation of integrative medicine and having the clinical understanding and the experience of how to practice it.
That's great. And I think it's so important when it comes to cancer and so many patients now are looking for that. Correct. And and we need to make sure that, you know, that the qualification is there because right now everybody hangs out a shingle saying, you know, integrative. And, you know, I I, I see like even like a plastic surgeon the other day saw an advertisement. It's like, oh, they use Arnica after Botox and now they're integrative. I'm like, I'm not sure if that's the right word (laughs) used to the term uh, integrative. Right. Um, And also a lot of people who will be like functional, like, you know, a lot of these people have little bits and pieces, but they don't have the full training. And so if they don't have the full understanding of pharmacology and, and, and anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, then when someone's on chemotherapies, for example, then it makes a difference of what we should be offering them and not offering them. Well, that's exactly why I'm glad you're here. And, you know, I wanted to talk about inflammation because I know it's part of our healing process. And, you know, for example, you bump your arm and blood rushes to it and and becomes swollen. And that's pretty much protect our injury, correct? That, that's one part of it. The, the, I think the biggest mistake that people misunderstand about inflammation is they think it's just that. So because that's the thing that everybody kind of understands on the simplest level, like, you know, bump myself, ouch, I get swelling and redness and heat and, you know, and pain. So pain is inflammation because everybody wants to take an anti-inflammatory, for example. But what we forget is that this inflammation is a variety of cascade of signaling in the body. And for example, some of these pathways are so powerful and they're kind of like the master switch to a house, which then, you know, goes to every single outlet in your house, whether you're running your refrigerator or you're running your your cell phone is these are master switches, but they actually affect like acute phase proteins, enzymes, apoptosis regulators, cell adhesion molecules, transcription factors, you know, they even turn on more cytokines, which are a variety of inflammatory pathways. You know, they even stimulate viruses uh, activity and receptors to your immune systems and functioning. And and so there's hundreds and hundreds of pathways, uh, biological mechanisms that are upregulating and downregulating. So some of them are positive, some of them are negative, but, but inflammation is a balance. It's kind of always like the, you know, Goldilocks rule. It's not, you know, not too hot, not too cold or the yin and the yang, as I always talk about in, in, in my book, it's like, there's a balance. So we need to have some inflammation to actually help the body control its physiological processes. The problem is right now, conventionally, uh, you know, in the United States and also worldwide, inflammation is just in an epidemic proportion, causing dysfunction of all sorts of diseases. So for example, inflammation comes from the word uh, flam, flame, uh, which means itis, I-T-I-S, I-T-I-S, right? So anything that has the, has the word itis on the back of the, the end of it just means inflammation of that area. So when we think of right now, there's 200 different itises in Western medicine diagnosis. So we can start with the skin, dermatitis, you know, inflammation of the skin, conjunctivitis, inflammation in your eyes, runny nose, rhinositis, sinusitis, you know, inflammation of the sinuses. I can get gingivitis, you know, going to the dentist or thyroiditis, you know, or bronchitis or esophagitis or gastritis or colitis or prostatitis or arthritis. Everybody has some kind of itis going on. And what we, what we like to look at is what's the underlying triggering mechanisms that are causing that inflammatory response and turn it down. You know, how do we do the lifestyle changes? But more importantly, I think what people also don't understand is that inflammation then not only causes the de- degeneration of, the, of those conditions, right? So like a joint that gets worse and becomes more arthritic, right? Over time, it gets worse and worse and worse. But there's also a higher risk to having uh, risks of cancers. And so when we look at, uh, like, say, ulcerative colitis, for example, ulcerative colitis, uh, people that have ulcerative, 40, I think it's 43% of people that have ulcerative colitis within 25 to 35 years, about 30 years on average, will end up with colon cancer, right? Uh, people have active rheumatoid arthritis, 
actually have a 71 time higher rate of getting uh, lymphoma. Okay. HPV, look at simple virus in the cervix. Women who have uh, active HPV, and if it's not controlled, in about 10 or 20 years can actually have cervical changes, which will then change eventually and potentially can become a cervical cancer. It's not that these things are always the cause of it. It's just the cause of inflammation, causing degeneration, causing suppression to the immune system, causing the body not able to fight, fix, and repair, and then causing the, those cell tissues to become worse, eventually having you know, a change into a, a cancerous outcome. But even things like tobacco with you know, chronic bronchitis have a higher risk of lung cancer, H. pylori in the stomach having higher risk of you know gastric cancer you know just viruses like hepatitis a or b or c you know having chronic issues with that can actually lead to higher risk of having liver cancer so we understand that inflammation is not only just bad for our immediate problems but also it puts us at a higher rate a higher risk of getting cancers in certain tissues that are not also being repaired or fixed over time so if you're not controlling the inflammation I mean, it could take years and years and years to form a cancer Yes. And, and in fact, you know, my book, I actually have these diagrams because now what the data is showing is that oh, let's, let's take breast cancer, for example, or even a colon cancer. A lot of times people are so nervous or upset or, or, and disappointed, like say a woman gets a mammogram and then she'd say like COVID happened. So a lot of people weren't able to get routine screening and then, you know, they get, they get their mammogram and they go, oh my God, something showed up today and I might've missed it last year. But we now understand it can take anywhere from 10 to 15 years in development for that cancer to even show up. So it wasn't like, you know, so I tell people, don't, you know, don't stress about it. If you didn't see it last year, you missed your screening. Glad you got to continue to get screening. But the idea is a lot of people have this guilt, like, well, if I did it last year and I missed it, then, I, you know, I would have intervened earlier. But that's not necessarily true. It, it takes, a, you know, some cancers, rarer ones, but some of them are very aggressive. But in general, most cancers are slow growing. And that's the problem. It's because, you know, a lot of times people don't notice something until because it's a gradual thing. And so that a lot of times cancers or even symptoms of their cancer can be missed. So a lot of times when you see it on a mammogram. It's been there for a lot longer than just seeing it from last year. It, you know, it, was, it might have been there for 10 to 15 years. It's just that it's just big enough for now for us to pick it up by imaging. Right. And so what are some ways that people can reduce inflammation? So reducing inflammation, I always look at, it, you know, in my book, I, I give the 10 definitive steps. Right. And, and, and so it's evidence-based. We're looking at 1,500 studies and references. It's a, it's a variety of things. I look at cancer as being the perfect storm of a variety of things. So a lot of people, unfortunately, even conventional medicine uh, and I think even alternative medicine, we, we always want to talk about it as being like a single thing. I was a smoker or I, I, you know, I ate standard American diet or I didn't exercise or you know, we wanted, I was just always stressed out. You know? But it's a little bit of everything. You know, and so what happens is it is that perfect storm. So we like to look at, you know, the epigenetics of the patient, the diet, the lifestyle, the environment, the belief system. And if you understand how to improve those epigenetic factors, then you actually can decrease your, your cancer growth uh, and also your cancer, more importantly, cancer recurrence, because a lot of people now are having recurrence of their cancers, uh, you know, within five years or within 10 years now. And so we're looking at, you know, predominantly, you know, having everybody going to as much as they can organic, non-GMO, whole food, plant-based diet, number one. So the food and anti-inflammatory diet is key. Um, you know, looking at what we like to look at is which foods are triggering inflammatory responses. So one of the things that I'm well known for is, you know, since I'm a food person uh, and you'll, in my book, you'll learn why, because I have food sensitivity. I'm the peanut allergy kid. So I understand, you know, anaphylaxis and food inflammation on the, on a, on a life threatening uh, uh, standpoint. 
But we're looking at like what kind of foods, you know, plant, vegetable, animal, grain, or legume can be, you know, or fruit can come in that also triggers an inflammatory response. So it's not just eating healthy, but it's looking at, you know, eat, now we're trying to bio-individualize medicine, looking at your specific immune response and looking at food sensitivities of immediate reactions and delayed reactions. Uh, we also talk about detoxification. Um, not the trendiness of what and everybody's talking about detoxification is an overused word, but it's understanding like what is the mechanisms of detoxification in the body, you know, um, and talking about, you know, stopping smoking, uh, st not using uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, using something natural and clinically effective like Bosmeric SR, learning how to increase your immune system, which I cover in the book. Uh, lowering your gl blood glucose levels and salt and sugar and those kind of things that also contribute to more inflammatory responses and chronic diseases, uh, looking at uh, stress reduction through yoga and meditation, and finally looking at like happiness, community, faith, and spiritual practices. So these are kind of the things just in general, uh, I kind of will guide my patients through. Okay. So you do testing to see what people might be sensitive to. Correct. Because when, well, the last thing I'd want to do, and this happens every day, I mean, we have people, you know, because right now people are slowly starting to go, which is great, is, is understanding the, the importance of a plant-based diet, right? They're understanding, you know, anti-inflammatory diet, as we'd say it. But that doesn't mean that your body can't have a problem with some of these other foods. And so I have a lot of patients all the time. By the time they come see me, they've either read my book or they've seen some videos on YouTube or these conferences that I go and attend, or they're just seeing other things in the, in the, in the science and the literature saying, hey, you should be eating this way. Sometimes they eat this way and they go, this makes me feel worse sometimes, or I, or I have this smoothie or had that food and, and, and my stomach hurt or my joints started aching. And then when we test them, it's like, oh, you have a sensitivity to that food and now you're eating it all the time or you didn't eat it before. So we really want to hone in on kind of the bio-individual uh, responses to food so that we're completely on an anti-inflammatory diet as much as possible. Pro-inflammatory foods, I would assume, you know, all the fried foods, processed foods, that kind of stuff. So, so ultra processed foods, fried foods, but you know, animal protein is pro-inflammatory, right? Animal protein is high in omega-6. It has little to no antioxidants. It's has uh, no phytonutrients. And, you know, so to the to the audience, you know, when we think of antioxidants and phytonutrients, everything that you go to a health store or you're getting from uh, your healthcare practitioner that is not a prescription drug, but that's a dietary supplement, is coming from a plant. You know, so when you think of lutein and lycopene and resveratrol and you know EGCGs from green tea and turmeric and you know boswellia and and all these other things like that. They only come from plants, you know, even your antioxidants, people are like, oh, I'm taking high vitamin C or this or that. These only are high things that are found predominantly uh, and only in plant foods. And we're looking at, you know, microbiome, which is a big deal. We study the microbiome, we evaluate the microbiome and, you know, animal protein has no fiber. And so it's, it's, these are things that actually cause more dysfunctions. Animal proteins stimulate insulin growth factor, which we know stimulates the growth of cancer, has heterocyclic amines, increases TMAO and NEU5GC, which these are um, kind of factors that actually promote cancerous growth. Um, it actually increases insulin resistance and, and intramyocellular lipids, which cause in blood sugar intolerances, which then causes obesity and blood, you know, heart disease and, you know, and all these things are also bioaccumulation of pesticides and herbicides and stuff. So uh, we like to move, you know, towards a plant-based diet because it has high phytonutrients, right? It's plant phytonutrient and high in antioxidants. It's anti-inflammatory, has no cholesterol, still the number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease. An interesting thing to your, your audience, if you're talking about cancer, I was just, you know, just a side note, um, I was at a, cancer, uh, a conference the other day, uh, three months ago in Washington, D.C., and they were reviewing the cancer data in patients in 2019 in the United States and in 2020, right? So the last kind of two previous years. 
And what's the number one cause of death in cancer patients in 2019 and 2020 was not cancer, as the patients might feel, and even doctors might think, it's heart disease still. Really? So, so one of the things that we have to, that we can't forget, which is happening all the time, is that people will go through cancer and usually survive, right? Regardless of what they're doing, right? In general, okay? But they'll die from heart disease because no one's looking at their diet still, right? Because like they might do chemo, surgery, radiation, or they might do some kind of alternative treatments, but still no one's telling them how to eat healthy completely to actually prevent the number one cause of death. So um, anyways, these are certain things that, you know, I go uh, with my patients and, and what we do and explain in my book, step-by-step step of these are things that you can do as well. Yeah. So I just wanted, I heard you touch on epigenetics. I just know a lot of people don't really understand what that is and, I know that you can pretty much turn on and off the expression of your genes, right? By doing certain things. Yes. I, I explained it in my book. It's like, like a card game, even though I'm not a good card player, by the way. Okay. So, uh, but it's like, we all are given the same cards, right? And we used to think, you know, gen with genetics, they used to think that, you know, if we go in and manipulate the genetics, that then we could affect the outcome, right? So, you know, if you had this diabetes gene or this heart disease gene, go to the library, take out that book and replace it with another book and that everything would be good. And, you know, we did this genome project in the 90s and we spent billions of dollars of taxpayer money for, for decades looking at all these things and saying, okay, hey, let's take this out. Or can we manipulate it? But we understand now is that it's not that you know, we all have these genes. It's really how those genes are expressed. So it's not like carrying the, you know, the card in your hand. It's how you play the cards. And that's what epigenetics is. is epigenetics is a diet, the lifestyle, the environment, and belief system. And those are the things that affect gene expression, turning it on or off. So when we look at, say, heart disease, for example, since we're talking about the number one cause, or even cancer, um, even the most recent studies now on BRCA, right? Because you're looking at BRCA and cancer, BRCA. And then now that the data is showing everything that it was kind of opposite of what people were worried about for the last 15 years is that there wasn't that much statistical change of those people that have BRCA genes or not. Like we were just so always worried like, oh my God, they have this. So some people would prophylactically, unfortunately, do surgery, right? And say, oh, I'm going to get rid of, you know, I'm going to do a mastectomy because I have this risk of potentially getting a breast cancer. And now, and, you know, well, you always thought that was foolish because we understood epigenetics. But, you know, a lot of people were nervous. I'm like, but that didn't eliminate their risk because, again, that was just taking off a body part. It wasn't changing the lifestyle, the environment, and the belief system that will actually then eventually trigger another type of disease in the body. So now we understand that, you know, epigenetics is everything. And so we have to change those things regardless of the disease. Because if you get look and look at heart disease, it's not that the heart disease gene is passing on so that your grandfather who might have a heart attack and you maybe your brother who may have had a heart attack, your dad or mom. And why you're at risk is not that it's a heart disease gene that's being passed on. What's being passed on is the diet, the lifestyle, and environment. The belief system is roughly the same. And so, like, if they eat this one way, then they taught their kids to eat that one way, and we teach our kids this way. And now, when we look at the standard American diet that's been exported all around the world, then we know that now heart disease is the number one cause of death in any kind of industrial, westernized country that eats the way of, of life. Because, you know, there's, a, there's going to be a fast food you know, restaurant, the same exact, you know, five, I won't mention it here, but probably liability issue, but five restaurants say here, if I go to Mumbai, it's there. If I go to Paris, it's there. If I go to, you know, Nigeria, it's going to be there. If you go, you know, if you go anywhere, it's like the same food that's, that we're kind of constantly been getting, which is basically a pro-inflammatory diet. And therefore this risk of heart disease now is everywhere that the diet or the, the epigenetics is also being handed to them. I'm so glad you touched on this because I had so many clients that have had that BRCA gene. And then they think I have to remove everything or my daughter has the BRCA gene and 
I'm so worried. I want her to get pregnant and all that. And it's so important to know that, that you could change the expression of your genes by all, by doing all these things. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I understand the fear, right. And, and, and people not wanting to have it for them or their family member, understandably, but, but it's also the easy way out. It's not doing the thing. So it's kind of like, well, I don't have to, you know, kind of set and forget it. So if I remove it, I don't have to worry about it. Right. But that's the wrong way of looking at health. Health is a, a daily practice. You know, people are not born with it. I always tell I always tell my patients, you know, when we see Olympic Olympic athletes or these like professional athletes that play sports, a lot of people think like they just grew up and they just threw a ball perfectly or they swam really good or they ran really fast. No, it was just when we were out at a party or we were doing something in high school or college or you know, these people were at the gym or they were training or they were at the pool or I mean, for some childhood. They're not natural. Is what's our natural is that because it, it becomes a daily practice where it just becomes part and parcel of how their lifestyle is. And so as a as our integrative clinic, Sangevity Integrative Medicine Health and Lifestyle Center, it's even funny. We were lifestyle for 22 years. Everybody used to laugh, like, why are you doing lifestyle? That's so funny. You know, blah, blah. Why is health and lifestyle part of medicine? And now there's you can get board certified in lifestyle medicine right now. Right? Everything's kind of coming full circle again, right? It's because, you know, you have to change the lifestyle. If you don't change the lifestyle, then you're going to get the, you know, the disease style or the death style, as I'd say, you know. No fault of the patient is that that's just what's being sold to them, right? And and a lot of times doctors are the last people to change because they like the, the standard American diet just as much as the patients do. So there's a little bit of a change and a lag of time when it takes physicians to actually stand up and be the re- representative or the example. And that's what we do in our clinic. You know, we are the example, and that's because it's the lifestyle that we live. It took a little time to change that way, and I and I always work with my patients like, hey, this doesn't have to happen overnight. If you don't have cancer, if you have cancer, I'm like, well, we're going to start doing some changes really quickly because this is how we can improve your outcome very fast. Right. And even to avoid recurrence, because I know I had ovarian cancer 23 years ago and I changed my entire life because I was thinking I don't ever want to go through what I went through again. And I just feel that I have to work harder maybe than the average person. And that's okay with me. Yeah. And then, and that's important because, you know, when we see recurrence, I'll give you an example. 60% of our patients are cancer patients, right? And it's not that I want to see cancer patients or want to become, you know, an integrative doctor that does a lot of cancer treatments. It, that's the change of the profile of the patient, right? Because it used to be heart disease and diabetes, but that's really passe these days, right? Because cancer, you know, one in, in one in two men and one in three women in their lifetime. So the, these are things that are kind of in an epidemic proportion that's happening. So it's the change of the, the, the primary care patient. Now it's like, oh yeah, they, they've had heart disease. That's on the back. You know, they've had diabetes, you know, now they're having, you know, you know, cancer thrown in there later on, maybe dementia. I mean, these are things that people start just stacking up because that just becomes common. But when we look at this overall, we have to look at, you know, how do we change that lifestyle? So of my patients, then 30% of those patients are recurrent patients. And then I have about 10% that are recurrent times two or three. So, you know, we have patients who will come in and they'll be like, oh, I'm on my third recurrence of this. And, and they're coming and saying something is wrong. I go, yeah, because we haven't, you haven't changed your epigenetics. No fault of the patient, though. What happens is I always give them the analogies, like say if you went to work as a, 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 some, a military personnel. So say if you work as in the army and you went to war. And you get shot, you come to the medic tent. We, as a physicians, we set, you know, we fix you all up. But if we don't give you, you know, a vest, if we don't give you GPS and if we don't give you, you know, <laughs> you know, special gear and stuff like that, you got to go right back out to the war zone and no fault of your own. You've got to get shot again. 
right? So the problem is the system has been able to treat patients, but in terms of prevention and, and kind of steering off the epigenetic factors, they just will say, well, if it comes back, we'll treat you again. That doesn't seem to be an appropriate answer for me. Yes. Thankfully. Right. Because once you had it once, you know, especially going through you know, what you went through, you know, 23 years ago, and now there's a lot of things that we know differently. Even sometimes the procedures and treatments would be slightly different, right? But we don't have the luxury. We have to do what we have to do at the time when we're giving these options. But it's also like, you know, nobody wants to go through it twice. It's like the movie that you don't want to have a sequel to. And so I, I always look at it as like, we have to change the script. You have to change the characters. You have to change the set. If you don't, the re, you know, sequel number two, sequel number three. And sometimes there's really bad movies. They keep on making, you know, here's the 10th one in the series. Like, wow, they're really, it's a really bad movie. Um, and, you know, you want it to be like, you know, if you had it, you had it and you've changed it. And, and if you have to change the epigenetics, and that's what we do very successfully. We, you know, and, and the patients have to want to change it. Sometimes I think a lot of times also people just get so tired because they get misinformation of what to do. There's so much misinformation on what to do for patients that they just kind of give up and either go completely this direction or unfortunately sometimes also completely that direction. And being integrative is like, we're always looking at how do we improve your outcome? That's how we measure things. It's not measuring it by what we use per se. It's looking at how do we improve the outcome using evidence-based therapies. Yeah. And quality of life. You know, if you're just do, and I'm not saying chemo and all that stuff's bad, but if you're just looking at that and nothing else, you're, you're trying to get rid of the disease, but you're not looking at longevity and, and feeling good. Sure. Sure. And, you know, quality of life is important. It's super important. And so some, you know, that's also missed in, in, in both sides, by the way, in alternative medicine and uh, uh, conventional medicine, because they're always looking at treating the cancer and we're looking at like healing the patient there's, and there's a difference. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, it's easy to kill cancer with chemotherapy or remove it with surgery or treat it with radiation, you know, but healing the patient is, is, a, is the challenge. And so we have to have that delicate balance because we, we need this kind of like destruction and then we need the rejuvenation. You know, and it's a lot of times you're just only going one direction and that's where side effects overcome then the quality of life or side effects overcome the, the life of the patient because, you know, you know, they got rid of the cancer, but the patient also dies, for example. Uh, and so we have to be careful of that. But I'll give you an example where we see a challenge is that right now is with the misinformation uh, and what we see with cancer patients coming to see us, for example, and all patients, just regular patients, is that on the alternative or natural side, they'll say, take everything when you get cancer, right? So they'll come and they'll be taking 20 to 50 supplements. And then on the flip side, you'll see the oncology saying, don't take anything, right? And they're both wrong because you have to have the skill and knowledge to understand the pharmacology, the physiology, the anatomy, and the biochemistry of how the drug and or the herb or the vitamin or supplement works. How does it go through the liver? What's the pathway? What's the half-life? You know, and we do, we have that information, by the way, but nobody takes the time to learn that, you know? So what happens is oncologists, right, rightfully so, they know their drugs. And naturopaths, rightfully so, know their supplements, you know, on the most end. But the problem is, is that they don't know the other side. And so what we do with all our patients, we're able to go and evaluate what, what regimen there are. We're able to say what they should take with it. Because right now in the last five years, thankfully, there's a lot of research on synergy. What a lot of oncology research is doing now, a lot of, believe it or not, pharmaceutical companies, believe it or not, are doing it. It's because we're running, they're running out of new therapies that are like kind of like enhancing the benefits, right? We kind of, they're only got so far. And now they're looking at when they combine it with certain natural agents, we actually have an increased efficacy and a decreased risk of some of the side effects. So we're looking at making something that's toxic more targeted 
so this is great because now we can look at like enhancing it. Now we also have data by these things naturally by themselves. We have chemo by itself and now on chemo plus these. So there's certain things that actually now show synergy. A new study that will come out every single day talking about these. Now, there are certain things that are also going to be contraindicated. You cannot take this at the time of your infusion, or you have to wait till 72 hours after that half-life has dropped two or three times. So we're really, really specific. And so when people say, gosh, you know, patients that see you do really well, it's like it's because we're using evidence-based integrative therapies. We're not saying this is better than that or not that's better than this. It's like we're just looking at science, like going back to my little garlic, like using science is science. And, and, and what we try to do, and this is something that I, I would always caution people is try not to look at biohacking. I know that's a big rage right now. There's even a conference going on, like I think next month or something in Mexico, big you know, thing. And it's all the, all the biohackers and the father of biohackers. You can't biohack the body. It does, that only gives you short-term benefit, right? So when people want to do a ketogenic diet or people want to do this kind of thing or take this kind of pill and, you know, okay, it looks really good. I can lose some weight in temporary, but the long-term sustainability of that is not there. And it's not been shown and actually shown to be detrimental. But the problem is you have to follow the laws of nature. If you follow the laws of nature, nature will reward in kind. And, and people don't understand it because, you know, as Americans, I get it too. You know, like if I can do something faster, quicker, simpler with the pill or the product and not have to put any effort, right? That's like understandably why women said, let me just do a mastectomy. I had brackets. That means I don't have to do any of the things that you've done for 23 years that you said it was hard to do still that you still got to keep working on, right? So it's kind of like, I, I understand that aspect. Like who wouldn't want to like lose weight and exercise without exercising and not eating, right? Like that would be the magic of the thing. And, but people sell those things, but you can't do that because the data doesn't support that because the laws of nature don't follow that. And so if you understand that, that's when we look at medicine and herbal medicine and energy medicine and natural medicines and the history of those things, you have to understand that if you have this broader perspective and experience, you have improved outcomes. But a lot of times people want to cheat. Like, I just want to eat only this, or I only want to only eat that, or I'm going to detox this thing out of my, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's the whole approach. It's like you said, it's just, there's so much to it. It's not one thing. Sure. Well, you touched on supplements, but I know there's a lot of oncologists that tell their patients do not take anything when you're going through chemo. Can you mention just maybe one or two that that is okay to take or do you feel? So, I mean, you'd have to go through individual ones, but like simple things like vitamin D is not contraindicated. You know, we give like Lucan 300, which is a, you know, the patented form of the polysaccharide that's been shown in vivo and vitro to be the strongest in helping an immune system. And what we're known for is our bosmeric, bosmeric SRs, our natural anti-inflammatory. Now that still has to be checked because some things can potentially interfere, but usually most things don't. Uh, and we still want to be lowering this overall inflammatory effect. And, you know, how can we give something that has been, pat you know, been patented, something that has clinical studies, not just in a cell culture. We're talking now, you know, like just in the right type of curcumin that we use, 145 published peer-reviewed studies, not paid for the comp by the company or not influenced by industry. We're talking about independent research studies. But, you know, I try to teach people. You know, my, my expertise is formulation over the last 20, 20, 22 years, looking at also manufacturing. So we actually look at how are things grown, how are they processed, you know, how are they patented. You know, there's a difference between a patent and a generic product, for example. So, um, you know, just like your drugs, we like to use generic drugs because they're cheaper, because but the molecule's the same, right? So, for example, like... Um, not that I'm recommending because I don't recommend people to take NSAIDs, but let's give an example like ibuprofen. Ibuprofen is the molecule, right? It's the same ingredient. But there's brand names like uh, Advil and Motrin, 
right? So some people, or you can go to Walmart and get their brand, right? And, or you go CVS or some other part. And it's just that profen, you know, same ibuprofen molecule, just a different box, a different name. So, so when it comes to drugs, we like generics because it's cheaper, right? And who wouldn't want to have cheaper? But when it comes to natural products, it's the complete opposite. We cannot patent a natural product because you can grow it in your backyard. So the government says, hey, we can't patent you know, these things because you can grow. It's natural. Anybody can grow. But what can be patented is how they extract it. What are the components? Is there a technology that's in the, involved in doing so? And when it is, then no one else can manufacture that way. And so when we look at when we look at certain studies that have patented products, then we look at taking that ingredient at those clinical doses and putting them into formulas. So we follow the science. We're not trying to, you know, a lot of times you'll see right now, unfortunately, with most cancer patients, they'll come and say, oh, I'm taking some turmeric, I'm taking some frankincense, I'm taking some of these other products, blah, blah, blah. I'm taking a mushroom extract. And I go, okay, but let's let's look at it. And then when I show them like, okay, this is not even standardized or this doesn't even have, you know, what I'm going to give you might be like 300 times more potent for a reason, because we're doing a clinic, you know, we need to follow what was given in the clinical study in patients to show benefit. Not that it's, you know, not that they're bad for them, but we need to have an outcome. So there's a difference where the industry will sell things because they're all about selling. Remember, the natural supplement industry is $8 billion. So it's no different than pharmaceutical. Everybody wants to sell pills. But the idea is that we're trying to sell the outcome of those pills. Right. So it's really putting in the science of where it is. And so I always, you know, a lot of people like to, you know, I always say like, you know, Let's, let's, let's discuss it or get in the ring, however you want to look at it. Like we have to say, like, if someone's saying this is good, then say, let's put it to the test and we stand behind what we give, but that's, you know, but it's not always my invention, but, but the, the, the genius is how do you then look at which ones, which company, and which is actually the true data that is stronger. And then how can we provide that patient to have a natural, safe, effective outcome? You're right. Cause people are just Googling you know, what are good anti-inflammatory? Yeah. And I'll give you a quick, I'll give you a quick example right now. You know, when talking, when we talk about our mantra has been, you know, potency, purity, safety, efficacy, that's kind of been our mantra for since we started. And so when we look at these things, like right now, 43% of just generic turmeric and curcumin on the market is synthetically made right now. Okay. So if I go to Amazon right now, look at the, you know, one of the top sellers right now, that's selling a very similar product on the market. You know, their base cost is less than a dollar 50 per thing. They're selling it for like 20 bucks. It has no, you know, Clinically, it's not going to do what people are going to think it's going to do. In fact, it may be causing some harm, right? But we have to look at, well, what is the specific components and why certain things are actually more expensive? It's not that we're charging more. It's like there's a, co- a base cost for higher quality product. You know, so like I just always tell people like this, if you go for a dollar value meal, you're getting non, you know, that's not nutrition, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, because they still have to make margin. They still have, you know, it's good. So, so a dollar value may cost them 10 cents of their base cost. Because remember, they still have to have all this labor and this and that and marketing, packaging, you know, and still they make a profit selling you a dollar value meal. Same thing. So when certain things sound so good to be true, we have to look at like they like to steal what we call good data from companies that actually put in the time, effort and, you know, and, and demonstrate the benefits. And then, but the average person doesn't have the ability to discern that. So they go, oh, it has it in there. I saw someone the other day, in fact, and they're like, oh, I'm taking a, a turmeric product. It had one milligram. One milligram. It's not even like a like a sprinkle, you know. And it wasn't even, you know, like that would have no physiological benefit. But that was the, you know, that it was on the label. So she's she's like, I'm taking an anti-inflammatory. They had one milligram, you know. So so 
this is where it's at. So then that person would say, well, I, or a conventional doctor would say, see, it didn't work. I'm like, well, because it didn't, of course it didn't work, right? So we have to be careful. We like to challenge the system because we have to look at clinical studies. And so when we offer certain things, and even when patients come see me, I'll give you an example, is that we will look at like, this one has higher data. Now, there's a lot of things that, you know, people can take that are just good for you. But when someone comes to see me, say they have a breast cancer estrogen positive or a triple negative or, or they have a melanoma or, or you know, a lymphoma uh, or a colon cancer, what type of that cancer is or, you know, we then look at like we have to look at which is an in vitro and an in vivo data that shows that that kind of plant molecule or derivative or whatever ingredient has some benefit of taking it. So we always start with those. Otherwise, people come in like, yeah, that's healthy. It's good for you. But is it more specific to your condition? And we always start off with what's kind of more evidence-based first and then go to just general broad scope. Got it. And it, this leads me to hormonal cancers because I feel like there's definitely been an increase in hormonal cancers, both in women and men. So what do you think the reason is? Environment and food. So let me give you an example. One of the misunderstandings that most cancer patients have, which is not explained to them correctly, is that they think that the, the hormone is causing their cancer, right? So if someone has estrogen-positive breast cancer or men has prostate cancer, they think that their estrogen caused their cancer So because they're taking a hormone blocker, right? Like a tamoxifen or you know, some kind of uh, hormone blocker for men as well, blocking the testosterone. Now, what it means is that, no, the cancer, the cancer was not caused by their hormone. Hormone grows the cancer. Why? Because those, those tissues, breast, for example, prostate, are sexual organs that have a higher density of those receptors. Okay. And so, it, it, but if it was the cause of the cancer directly, then, um, you know, men and women would be having cancer by the time they're 16, because when they started puberty at 13, their hormones are the highest, right? Because actually going through puberty, numbers are off the chart, right? That's what kids are really, you know, right? And so like you're going through this, you know, this younger ages, we'd be seen by 21, like everybody would have breast cancer, everybody would have prostate cancer because the testosterone levels would be so high in a male and the hormones would be so high in a female, but that's not true. But what is true is though that those tissues have a higher density of those receptors so that if there's cancer there, they can have that higher receptor uh, part of the tumor. And then those things are additional things that will trigger its growth, but it's not the only cause. So there's hundreds and hundreds of other signals, right? There's hundreds and hundreds. So like, for example, women who take, so anybody who takes a hormone blocker, it does help reduce that one thing. You know, it does block estrogen, for example, it doesn't help with the excretion helps with, the, with the, you know, the blockage of it, but it didn't stop the cancer from growing. Cause that's why the tamoxifen trials ended up going for 10 years and women still had recurrence, even though they took it religiously every single day, because we were looking at there's the, each cell of cancer has hundreds and hundreds of pathways. We just are limited with drugs that are prescribed to block a receptor or, you know, here's a biologic or here's an immunotherapy that's, you know, this cell blocker. So, you know, we might have a dozen of those things, but there's hundreds and hundreds of cell receptors. But this is where the diet comes in. Because when we look at the diet, we look at natural things. Like even when we give the Bosmeric SR, there's a hundred or more different biological pathways that we're looking at influencing through food ingredients, by the way, right? This is all food. That's why, that's why food is medicine because we're looking at phytonutrients, like hundreds and hundreds of phytochemicals that we're, we're trying to take to look at how do we balance, you know, not saying that don't take those drugs. We're looking at that, that's not, I wouldn't put all my eggs in the basket. I want to have, you know, insurance on top of, you know, having airbags in my car and a seatbelt. And, you know, you want to have as many layers of protection going forward. So going back to the aspect that you mentioned on hormones. So the environment's one. 
because the, the amount of xenoestrogens that, are, that we're getting exposed to, this is from plastics, is huge. It's hugely in our water. It's hugely you know, in our food container. People heat still things in plastic and they microwave in plastic. And most things that even when we get from a restaurant, you know, they send it home in a styrofoam container. And when we test patients right now, we can actually see high levels of styrene and all these other things coming out in the urine, just urinating. So these are high levels of certain chemicals that can have these issues. The other thing is the, the standard American diet, which is animal protein. So at this conference I was at, there was a wonderful oncologist. I can't remember the name of, of her, but she was fantastic. And she just pulled up some data, which really was kind of just dropped drop, drop my jaw. And it was the following. Three servings of dairy a day and two servings of butter, right? So three servings mean like having a little bit of latte in the morning, maybe having a cheese on your burger or maybe a piece of pizza, uh, maybe having a little ice cream or yogurt, uh, and then having two pats of butter, like something in a pan that's being cooked, something on a piece of toast or a bagel, um, has the same amount of, has 40% estrogen and 60% progesterone of a birth control pill. Wow. That is a big wow, because, <laughs> you know, we always knew, right, like dairy, you know, because they keep the animal pregnant and they got to give it hormones. And, but what we didn't know is like how much was actually coming into the food and now they can measure it. So that's a lot. So it's really funny. Like we're trying to give someone that's a, a pill to block hormones. And, you know, most of these women are, are, you know, for example, who have the cancers, you know, there's younger women that we're starting to see more and more. But even women who are postmenopausal, we're like, well, gosh, your body's not even producing very little, if any. You know, someone who's 10 years menopause, right? They still want them to take them on. But it's like the reason being is because it's not that their body's producing as much, is that we're still getting exposure from our diet. Nobody wants to talk about these things because it's controversial. There is industries on these things. There's, you know, there's there's lobby groups. It's it's food industry doesn't want you to know about this, but it's a huge thing because you know the average person will be like, oh, I need my, you know, my my dairy for my bones misunderstanding. Uh, I need this for my this misunderstanding. Uh, you know, it does my body this. No, it doesn't. Right. So we have to be careful. But I, I believe my my opinion would be what the data is showing is that these, the risk of hormonal cancers is not our body producing more. In fact, our body's actually producing less hormones as you know, especially men's testosterone levels have been dropping over the last 15 years. So a lot of environmental things, you know, like these, these you know, estrogens are that are being linked or are risked or correlated with that. But to me, food is food and the environment are the two main reasons. Got it. Now I could talk to you forever, but I want to get into our, our uh, second segment. Um, but any quick tips for someone going through cancer and also maybe they're finished with cancer. So I would start with my book. And the reason being is this, I want people to feel confident of like, whether they've gone through cancer, there's no shame or blame. Like, you know, so a lot of times it's in retrospect, people are like, oh, I didn't know that now. Well, you didn't know that. Fine. Start from today moving forward with healthy lifestyle changes, right? But I always tell my patient, you have to even get healthy for treatment. Like when I have a patient, and for example, say if they're early stage cancer, right? And, and things are already scheduled now because of COVID and everything, it's, everything's delayed, right? So it's like, okay, they'll get them, you know. It's like, well, we still got to have you healthy for treatment. Like you just, you know, like now a lot of times, like if it's, if it's already a, a, you know, a larger stage, it's more serious. You got to have surgery tomorrow. That's one thing. But if there's time and effort, then, you know, how do you improve even the surgery outcome? How do you improve even the treatment is by getting that patient as healthy as possible, right? Because you have to get the immune system stronger and all the inflammatory signals down and you have to fix their microbiome. And even especially post all of the treatment, you got to restore all that. So when people want to look at how do I prevent my recurrence? 
is by now coming and saying, okay, what do I need to do to ensure and change my epigenetics so we can help them with that? And then people just saying, I don't want to even have cancer. Then the book will just start to say, do, do these things, do these 10 steps. And you don't have to do everything perfectly. Just go through one, go to the next one, go to the next one, start changing over time. But believe it or not, it's not that difficult especially now with foods and now with alternatives and now with all these other wonderful things that are available. Uh, and there's so much things like, you know, you give coaching and stuff. So there's, so people have a lot more uh, opportunities for being healthy than maybe 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, which they didn't have that, that opportunity. So I think, you know, it, no time is better than now is to do the change. That's a perfect way to end, to go into random round. Sure. Fill in the blank. Okay. Freedom to you is... Freedom to me is being disease-free and debt-free. <laughs> the last show you binged and loved. Uh, that actually, the one I, I just finished uh, just, just recently was the Get Back documentary on the Beatles. It was a great insight to see the creativity between, you know, uh, the Beatles. It was like, to me, like this was before my time, right? So all, all, all I did was listen to the music growing up, but I wasn't at the time when the Beatles were so big, right? You know, I was a, I was a child. And so uh, to see that interplay of, of the genius of, of the collaboration between the two, uh, especially Paul and, and uh, John, but also to see the, the silliness, the goofiness, and some things that were on the spot. Like I was surprised, like I used to think that sometimes people would sit there for write lyrics for you know, a long time and go back. And it was pretty much on the fly. <laughs> Just going through names that would randomly rhyme or fit. And like, wow, five minutes before something is due, like they just busted out a song. And the next day they're filming it. Next thing it's on an album. Next thing you know, it's top 10. You're like, that's it's pretty impressive. Amazing. A gift. For anybody who wants to look at it like that, it's great, 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 uh, great memories and great, great, great film footage. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I meditate. And I hang out with my dog, Princess Winnie. If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? I would have a discussion with Neil Peart, which is the former drummer of Rush. He is considered, in my opinion, and most people in the world would say he was considered the top drummer, rock drummer of all time. Uh, his arrangements, his skill was unsurpassed. He unfortunately passed away with a brain tumor. And I was trying to get my book to him many, many years because I knew he had some inflammation issues. You know, playing three hours a day at that high level skill, which every drummer wishes to be like that, but we actually just play it like levels lower. Um, it's funny, like most people like play rock music. We say, okay, we like, we can play all these other rock bands. But Rush was always like, on, that was like Olympic gold. Like, okay, we're, we're all bronze and silvers. And that's just like, we aspire that, but we couldn't get to that level. But um, unfortunately, because we have really good results with patients with the same kind of brain tumor, and I never was able to connect with him. He's a great author and a great lyricist, um, great photographer. Uh, so he's got wonderful books of journeying. And, and he lost his wife to, to cancer. And he lost his daughter to a car accident. So he went on a journey. He wrote a, he wrote a couple of books. He travels on a motorcycle. And his descriptions of just that loss of family, you know, and then just traveling, uh, you know, from one part of America to the other and just meeting people and just a wonderful um, environment is just pretty inspiring. So I would have a, I would have a discussion with him. And what is your favorite go-to snack? I'm trying not to snack, but my go-to, <laughs> I actually try to eat three meals a day. My, my, my snack I kind of like is, there's two things. I like pumpkin seeds. I like raw and roasted pumpkin seeds, pepitas we call them here. And, uh, you know, put a little bit of tamari on them. It's kind of, a, I just kind of a nice snack. I'm allergic to nuts, so I'm a seed guy. The other thing I got into more recently, at least once a week, is the little seaweed snacks. 
they're like teriyaki, they're organic roasted seaweed, uh, you know, just to get my eye, you know, a little bit of iodine in my diet. I don't, you know, we're, we're plant, I'm plant-based, so don't eat any fish. I don't use the iodized salt because we use Himalayan salt. So I have that once a week. I like that sweet saltiness, crispiness of it. Again, it's probably not filling for, it's not like a snack, you know, but it, it is something that I would probably end up saying is a snack for me. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Playing drums. Mm-hmm. That's easy. I can play for hours. So it's one of the things I can get an interesting thing, you know, with my patients, I talk about heart rate variability and, and meditation all the time. And now there's all these devices that, you know, you can like, you know, put on with apps and measure your heart rate co- coherence because people who have their balanced heart rate coherence live the longest, regardless of the stage of cancer they're in. Right. So it's one of the things like, how do we control the fight or flight? How do we, it's my meditation people. How do I meditate? Well, what we do is then we're able to use biofeedback devices to train people because it doesn't matter what type of meditation it is. You know, we, I used to be able to train, you know, with Maureen, my partner, we used to be able to teach like mantras when she used to work with Deepak Chopra and we see thousands of people around the world, you know, like meditation is kind of formally from an Eastern perspective. But now uh, as, as I get older, I'm just more about like whatever gets you into the zone, that's your meditation. So for me, like right now, I can put these little devices on, I can play my drums and I'm completely in alpha state, which is the meditative state. So uh, meditation, my problem is sometimes I get so caught up in it. I'll play for like three to five hours. And then the next day, I'm so sore. I can't brush my teeth. I can't <laughs> move my arms because, uh, again, I know it's not a daily practice. I'm a weekend warrior. So, you know, it's probably better if you did it a little bit every day. But that's what I would do. I play drums. That's, that brings me the really quick joy. What's on your nightstand? Bookwise? It could be bookwise. It could be essential oils. <laughs> so, so yeah, so bookwise, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm finishing up a couple of books. I, I So I, I spend about two, three hours doing research every day because that's for my patients looking at articles and stuff like that. So to get my mind a little bit off of those things, um, there's one I'm reading called The Anatomy of an Epidemic about um, the anybody who takes antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills. It's an investigative journalism story about the whole history of this. You'll be surprised. Those people who are psychiatrists would be super surprised because a lot of things that we give every day, like we have to understand, like the hit, we don't, we're not taught the history of medicine, unfortunately, in medicine. So it'd be, you'll be surprised, like how little data that we have on some of these drugs that are just, you know, millions of Americans are on and how this actually, we're understanding the changing of the neurophysiology is happening from people being on the drugs. It's not an on and off receptor. The second one is the happiness advantage. Uh, it's a short book, but I'm in the middle of that one. It's, it's, it's about studying happiness and understanding that happiness leads to success, not the other way around, which is very, very interesting because they have all the scientific data and it goes beyond because, you know, we always think like, oh, if I do this and I'm successful, I'll, I'll be happy. And that's not necessarily scientifically true, which is quite, you know, that's why I'm reading the book. I'm like, I want my son to see that. <laughs> I want my son to see again. The last one is actually something called the overturned bucket. It's a, a local writer here in New Mexico uh, for those people who want to learn about like, you know, our local culture. And I, you know, it's talking about in early 19th century uh, New Mexico territory and families and, you know, Southwest. If you like to understand like what it used to be out here 100 years ago and how people were treated, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, and the beauty that's kind of within the whole story, that's kind of a nice, touching story. That's, those are my three things. Now, other things like that would be like, you know, I got my, I got, I got some organic hemp oil that I, that I formulated for a company for sleep. I have, have my Glucan 300 because I take it before bed on empty stomach. I have my Bosmeric in case I'm a little achy by the end of the day. Um, that's pretty much it. Big bottle of water. Glucan, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, Glucan 300, yes. Okay, you said it so fast. I wanted to make sure. Yeah. What's your favorite form of exercise? Yoga. 
And I explain that, by the way, in my book, the, the benefits of that, because a lot of people I consider like they do mic yoga, I call it, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's like, no, you need to get an understanding like yoga is actually preparation for meditation. So that's the lead into. And so once you understand how to do the right pranayama breathing techniques, uh, the right kind of postures, it's not being perfect. It's actually the practice of it. It's quite interesting. You know, we can build bone density. We can improve natural killer cell function. You know, there's all these things. A lot of people just think of it as, a, as an exercise, in quotes, but it's more than that. And if but they need to do it correctly. So we actually have a, a yoga studio here and, and we do, and Maureen teaches the yoga here for our patients in our community. And so that's one thing that we want, but anybody just doing that would be beneficial. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? The opportunity to do what I'm doing. And, and I think when I, I, I feel lucky is that I, when I chose that, you know, originally saying integrative medicine is what I've always wanted to do. And now being the OG, one of the OGs, as they call it, uh, in integrative medicine is great because, you know, you have like, I have this wealth of experience and, and knowledge and there's an art and science to medicine. And, you know, just like my dad was a specialist, there's an art and science of having that years of practice to do a surgery, for example, so perfectly. Um, I, I'm, I think I'm blessed because, you know, I was in at the right time and now it's all the rage. So I think I'm blessed because I'm in a place right now where I wouldn't be doing anything else. Like, I think that I'm really happy that I'm in a place right now where I can now take my information of education and helping people to a global scale. And that leads me to where can people find you? So, um, sanjevani.net spelled S A N J E V A N I sanjevani.net. Um, that's where they can go, or they can learn about the product like bossmeric.com, B O S M E R I C.com or sanjevani.glucan300.com as well, but they can just go to sanjevani.net. We'll have the links for everything else as well. We'll be opening our podcast coming soon. So we'll have our podcast coming out. We had a radio show about two years ago and it was fantastic. And, now we're just going to move to a podcast format so I don't have to be stressed on the live performance of internet failure and stuff like that. Great. You know, it's nice doing that. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll definitely will have you on our show to tell your story. I would love it. Love it. Well, I just want to thank you so much. It was great talking to you. You gave such great nuggets and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me and I'd be uh, enjoy coming back anytime. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.